We have people all the way from Australia here today. <laughs> uh, Sandy Kerno, a previous pastor, his sister and husband are here today, and so glad to have you guys. So um, turn to Genesis chapter 17. And that's so you want to go up to talk to them because it's always fun to talk to an Aussie. <laughs> Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15 today, really Genesis 17 should be taken as a whole. If you missed last week's sermon, I would encourage you to, to go back and listen to that one as well because they really do fit together. And they will create a, a, uh, a tension. I like to talk about tensions in Scripture. It will create a tension that we have to hold on to if we're going to have a correct uh, view of God and salvation. Is God teaching you to laugh? Seems like a strange question to ask. But in today's passage, God brings Abraham to burst into laughter. And in the next chapter, he, when, the, when the message is translated to Sarah, she will laugh as well. God uses their laughter to teach us another rule of the covenant. A covenant is a relationship with rules. Your relationship is governed by laws, ways in which God works. And this rule is difficult to understand. It's even more difficult to accept. Here it is. Covenant blessing is always the fruit of the sovereign working of supernatural grace. Covenant blessing is always the fruit of the sovereign working of supernatural grace. Pretty easy to say. Rolls off the lips okay. It is not simple to believe or to submit to. In fact, I would argue that it is laughable. So let's read the text. And we'll walk through the passage together. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. 
As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he circumcised in the flesh of his when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May God bless the reading of his word. We saw last week that one of the rules of a covenant relationship is that children are included in the covenant. God even commanded that children receive the the sign of the covenant upon themselves. In fact, to deny them that covenant sign was actually a denial of being in the covenant. God declares himself to be the God of not only those who come to him, but also their children. Covenant promises are theirs. And the obligations of the covenant, this is a very important thing from last week, the obligations of the covenant are imposed upon the children even without their consent. Okay, They're required to grow up to love God. It's, a, it's put upon them. Now this being said, and this is the tension, covenant blessings are not naturally passed down from parent to child. Did you hear that? Covenant blessing is always the fruit of the sovereign working of supernatural grace. That means, unless God sovereignly chooses to pour out his divine power, no one will enjoy the eternal blessings of the covenant, period. So how is this taught in the passage before you to this day, this, in this passage? Up until this moment, Abraham has been the focus of the promised blessing. He was chosen by God, and this is something we made a point several weeks ago in chapter 12. He was chosen by God by unconditional election. Could have chosen a plethora of other people. God reaches down and chooses Abraham. God was sovereign in his choosing in Abraham. In other words, he didn't have to choose Abraham, could have chosen somebody else, but he chooses Abraham. There was nothing in Abraham that prompted God to choose him. He wasn't like the best option in the, in the room. You know, he wasn't the tallest, wasn't the most handsome, wasn't the most holy. He was just Abraham. And God of his own free mercy cho- chooses Abraham and promises to him blessing. Now that blessing was relatively simple at the beginning and it will actually expand in all that it means as time goes on. But it is still at this point, I will bless you, Abraham. Now up to this point, 
Sarai has not even been mentioned. She's not really, we know that she's somehow connected to the blessing, but basically because she's with Abraham. Now, in this passage, God tells Abraham that the promised blessing will only come through her. God changes her name. Although, we don't really understand a lot of the significance of the name change, so somebody could come talk to me afterwards about that, but they're both variants of the word princess. But the point is, is that Sarah will be the mother of a son, and Sarah will be the mother of nations and the mother of kings of peoples. Now the promise is not merely that Abraham will be blessed, but that Sarah will be blessed. Miraculously. Now this comes on the heels of the previous chapter where Abraham and Sarah actually devised their own plan to bring about the blessing through Hagar. Right? So we understand that connection. And so we have to understand that God is promising to do what both Abraham and Sarah consider impossible. God's word of promise makes no sense to them. You guys all know this. There's some prayers that you pray that, that make sense. You know, you know, Art got sick yesterday or a couple days ago, and I prayed for him that he would get better. And there he is sitting on it, and I was like, okay, I believe God answered that prayer, and you got well, okay. But that's not the same thing as what's going on here. This is a prayer that is unimaginable. It's preposterous. It's silly. I mean, if God had only fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah 25 years previously, we would have thought nothing of it. We would have concluded, oh, how good God is. He's good to the LaBelles. He gave them nine children. Right? He's, that's a good thing. God is very kind and gracious. We know that, that children are a blessing from the Lord, are a miracle from God in, in some sense, small miracle sense. But that's not what's happening here. There were no human means by which Sarah could bear a child. God actually waits. He purposely waits until they are as good as dead. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to do it. The only possible way that Sarah is going to bear a child is if God sovereignly does a supernatural work of grace in her heart. Hebrews 11.11 says that Sarah herself received power to conceive. Supernatural power. God was the source of this power. It was a miraculous power, meaning it was distinct from what we would call the normal working of providence. I know that God is at work in the, the, the conception and growth of every child, but this is something unique and different. It goes above and beyond 
the normal working of God's providence. He does something inconceivable. Dare I say, laughable. And that was Abraham's reaction. <laughs> right. Yeah, good one, God. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You see, God's whole intent for the last 25 years was to bring Abraham to this point of laughing. And we'll see in the next chapter that Sarah has the same reaction. Maybe even more incredulous to her. And so you ask, what is this laughter that's going on? And the word, the Hebrew word can actually have a range of meaning, just like in our English, it can have a range of meaning. Uh, it can be used to just be like this incredible joy, that you're laughing of joy. It can also be used of mocking, and later on it will be used of Ishmael as he mocks uh, Isaac. But I believe in this, this passage... It seems to be that there is this belief. Hebrews tells us that Abraham does, is not at a point where he doesn't believe. It's not just a statement, oh, I don't believe you, God. He, he's believing, but it is believing with a mixture of doubt and just this preposterousness, this idea of, that just doesn't seem possible, God. You say it, and I believe it, but I don't know how that's going to happen. That's what's going on. The next question we need to ask, is this event, this historical event of God promising something incredulous, is that something that is an isolated event? In other words, is it something that's there just for Abraham and Sarah and for us to say, wow, that was really cool back then? Or maybe, you take it in a Christological sense, is it a foreshadow of Jesus Christ being born of the womb of Mary? I'd say, yes, that's true. But is that all that's going on? And I would say, no, it is not. I believe that this, this situation, this, this God-ordained situation, has been crafted by God to be a template through which we understand our salvation. In Galatians 4, Paul even uses the word analogy. Talks about the analogy of the difference between Sarah and, and uh, Hagar. So in the one woman, Hagar, she bears a child in the natural way. But Sarah is going to bear her child in a supernatural way. According to the unbelievable preposterous promise of God. Now I want to look at these two words, sovereign and supernatural. I want to look at supernatural first and then sovereign because they're very important that we understand something of what's going on in them. Supernatural first. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it reads this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Sounds pretty simple. But then in verse 13, he says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, becoming a child of God is not humanly possible. It's, you, there's no, you can't do it. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot make it happen. This is the point. And, and, and uh, John establishes that a person does not become a child of God through physical birth. Not of blood. That's what he's talking about. So there is no natural passing on of becoming a child of God from a parent who is a believer to a child who's not. Just can't happen that way. It is also not possible that the will of the flesh can bring about the person becoming a child of God. You cannot just determine sometime, I am going to be a Christian. Doesn't work that way. And thirdly, to be born of the will of man is very similar, but I think it may have a slightly different nuance that that this is the idea, I want so-and-so to be saved. God, it's my will that I want so-and-so saved, and please save them, or just maybe save them. And God says, that is not the way someone becomes a child of God. It's not born of the blood, it's not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. You cannot become a child of God this way. Now understand, I think this is uh, in line with the other side that says children are members of the covenant. I don't think John is describing something new. Oh yeah, in the Old Testament you became a child of God this way, and now in the New Testament there's a new way. I think he's just stating the fact. No one becomes a child of God through natural means. Why do we know that? Because at the very, very beginning, we were told that Sarah only bears a child through a supernatural, sovereign working of God. Later on, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, you have to be born from above, or you can't see the kingdom of God. And he talks about the Spirit, and he says that the Spirit's like a wind that blows this way and that. And it, you can't really control this wind, but it's, it's there. It's doing its work to save people. So even though salvation includes a decision, as, Paul, as Clark said, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a decision, right? You're calling on the name of the Lord. The actual bringing to life of that which is dead is not something that occurs because of a decision. You cannot will yourself to be born again. Now, if you think, oh, yes, I can. I, I can walk an aisle or I can pray to receive Christ. I can do that kind of stuff. All right, try this. And this is what the point of the passage was. Oh, you want to you be right with God? Love him with all your heart. Says that to the rich young ruler. Oh, I've done that. Okay, let's try number one. Sell all your possessions and follow me. Well, I can't do that. Right? Because it is not a human manufacturing that creates a child of God. I mean, just, I dare you. Try it. Try today to leave this room and to go a full day without, with every thought, every word, every action, 
all be loving God and your neighbor supremely. You try it. You will fail. As a Christian, you are pleading with God to do a supernatural work of grace in your heart. You're asking him to do something that he doesn't have to do. But he says he will promise to do if you continue to ask him and you continue to cling to him. He says he will do it. God also is sovereign in the timing of things. So even though that he promises to you at the beginning of your first trusting in Christ, he says, I will sanctify you, I will root out every sin so that you will be perfectly holy all the time. That's my promise to you. He sure doesn't do it as quickly as we want and in the ways that we want, does he? Sometimes we wonder if his power is even working at all. And during these times, we tend to say, okay, let's forget the promise. Let's forget the work of God. And let's just do what we know humanly we can do to bring about this promise. We stress our own abilities. So becoming holy Becoming a child of God, becoming like God, is a supernatural work of grace. It is also a sovereign work of grace. That's the second thing. And this is what frustrates me the most. We want to control God. We want Him to work under our direction. We want God to do what we want, when we want with whom we want. I'll start with the who. We want to tell God who he should save. You and I want salvation to be according to our will. You know what God says? Sorry. Not happening. The rule of the covenant is that I will save people sovereignly. Period. Every person in this room, if you are a lover of Jesus Christ, has someone that you love and have prayed for and sought the salvation for that God has at least to this point chosen not to save. Many of you have watched people go to their death, to their grave, not believing. Maybe a son, maybe a daughter, maybe a sibling, a lifelong friend, a mom or a dad. This is personal to me. My mom is a believer. My dad still says he does not believe in Jesus Christ. I pray for him regularly. Plead with God to save him. But if God does save him, Yes, it will be in response to prayers, but it will be a work of his sovereign grace. God doesn't have to save anyone. Parents, you are called, you are commanded, you are called, you are are told by God to pray for the salvation of your children. 
You are given this privilege. In a way, you act as a priest to them. You are to love them. You are to feel it with every fiber of your being that you want them to be saved. But God is not bound to save every covenant child. If he was bound, if God was bound to save every covenant child, then it would no longer be unconditional election. And it would no longer be a sovereign working of supernatural grace when he saves. It is always that. It has always been that. It will always be that. I'm telling you, God wants you to pray for your children until you die or they die. Don't ever give up praying for them. I'm not saying it's fatalistic. God uses our prayers. He uses the love that you have. And you should grieve when your loved one does not come to know Christ. But you should know that God is sovereign in salvation. You are not demanding it from God. You are pleading it because he wants you to plead for your children. It's the only way he saves. Sovereign grace is also an issue of timing. Sometimes God just doesn't want to save your child at the time you want him saved. And they come to know Christ later on. And we've heard those stories. But I also think that that this issue of timing is also when it comes to the timing of our victory over sin. God sometimes, when you trust in him, will eliminate a sin like that. Because he's free to do it. He can get rid of a sin. It's not hard to him to get rid of your sin. But sometimes he doesn't do that. Right? And he's sovereign over that. He says, I will redeem you. I will take away all of your sin. I will cleanse you perfectly. And you will love me. That's a promise. Given to all who are in Christ. And I believe that there is a testing going on. There is a, there is a sense of which I should be, I feel this, this arrogance that God, if, if, if I have tried to overcome the sin, it should be gone. And if it's not gone, I'm frustrated either with myself or with God. Instead of saying, Lord, my freedom is dependent upon you and I will cling to you and I will trust you and I will do all the means that I know how to do in this life to overcome sin but I know that the true overcoming of sin is only something that you do and you do it in your timing. It also calls you to be a lot more patient with your brother or sister who might be struggling with a sin that you seem to have overcome rather quickly. We should be like Jacob, who when he wrestled with God, says, I will not let you go until you bless me. There is no other way that you can be free from your sin than God does a supernatural work. There's nowhere else you can go to get rid of your sin. Only Christ has the power to remove sin from your life. Don't quit waiting upon him. Now you begin to see how hard it is to accept these things, isn't it? We want God to be a credit card. Unlimited amount, plug it in, does exactly what you want when you want it. But you know what God wants to do? He wants you to laugh. He wants you to laugh. When God saves anyone, 
yourself, when he conquers some sin in your life, he wants you to think, oh my goodness, you did the unthinkable. You did something I didn't think was possible. You brought life where there was death. And he wants to do it every time. There are no normal salvations. Everyone. I mean, it could be normal to us. I hope it is. I hope little Jonathan comes to know Christ so early that he can't ever remember not knowing Christ. And it might look normal to us, but it's not normal. And if you look around and see the numbers of people who are not being saved, you should say, it is not normal if I love God. Supernatural, sovereign grace. Impossible, humanly. Don't underestimate that you really don't want God to do the impossible. You and I are just like Abraham. Look at verse 18. Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, this is what I can see. This is the way that I think it should be. Ishmael's already here. Why can't I just have children through him? And God says, "Mm -mm." one of the few times God emphatically just says, no, it's not the way it's happening. It's not the way people are saved, Abraham. Don't you realize it's about me? I am sovereign. I am the supernatural one. It must happen through my work and my work alone. I wonder if this is not our greatest sin today in America. We think that people are saved because there's the right sort of evangelism, the right sort of music, the right sort of advertising, even the right sort of preaching. Fill in the blank. You hear people talk about the problems of America and how we get back. We we don't have prayer in schools. We don't have the Ten Commandments in the courthouses. Families are crumbling. Drugs are rampant. It's usually followed by this call to action. We'll fix it. Do this and we'll fix it. How arrogant we are. The real problem is this. God is not saving people. Hard to admit that, isn't it? If God were changing the hearts of individuals and saving them, this place would be different. I don't say that to accuse God. We have told God for years that we know how to save ourselves. He says, you want want salvation to be normal? It's not the way I do things. And if we do ask him, we want him to work according to our timing as we ask, under our control. Oh, I may not want him to save the person down the street who's addicted to drugs, but I do want him to save my kid. Control God. We determine who he saves and who he doesn't save. And he just sits back and says, not working that way. I have done this. Oh, I'm going to build a church. We're going to make this church what it should be. And people are going to do and be who they're supposed to be. Mm -mm. The fact that God doesn't just do away with us is pretty amazing. I hope I'm learning to laugh when he saves. 
I hope I'm learning to laugh when he saves me. Let's take a few minutes and just talk about Ishmael. God says, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God tells Abraham, no, that, that Ishmael is going to be the one through whom the blessing is going to come. But that's not all that he says. He tells him that he has heard his prayer. God promises to bless Ishmael, and it's certainly temporal promises. In Genesis 25, we see that that Ishmael does become a nation with 12 princes and rulers. But I don't think this is all that's going on, as if God were saying, yeah, Ishmael's going to have a good life, but he's going to burn in hell. I don't think that's the point. Do you know what he's telling Ishmael? He's telling Ishmael that if he wants eternal blessing, he's got to submit himself to God's sovereign, supernatural plan of blessing. He's got to look to his younger brother, Isaac. Oh, how hard that will be. We'll follow Ishmael's pattern, his life, as we move along. But, but he, he's not telling Ishmael, you're out. He's telling Ishmael that Isaac is the path. The laughable, supernatural working of sovereign grace, that's the way to salvation. Ishmael is either going to submit to that, or he's going to not. And so, Abraham obeys God's command to circumcise not only himself, but Ishmael. It's interesting, I'm reading a book on baptism and circumcision. I try to read a book on this stuff once a year. But often it's talked about that, that this circumcision was, a, was just a sign of the physical descent and who the promised blessing would come. But God has already said that Ishmael should not be a part of that. He's not the one, and yet he's still circumcised. He's a member of the covenant. And he will have to trust in God's provision of the covenant, which will be Isaac. And in our situation, it will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Ishmael is brought near to the promises, but he still must embrace those promises. And the only way that he will embrace those promises is if God does a sovereign, supernatural work in his heart. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we put this into your time? There's many ways to apply it. Hopefully you'll come to me and tell me ways that you're applying it. But I would say first off, with humility... And thankfulness. You must learn to laugh at the sovereign and supernatural work of God with humility and thankfulness. If you have come to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, it is only the result of supernatural sovereign grace. You should look at the person next to you who doesn't believe, whether it be someone at work or in your family or whatever, and you should ask themselves, why do I believe and they do not? And your answer should be the sovereign, supernatural work of grace. Oh my goodness, why did you choose me? If you think that you have become a Christian through human means, you will never laugh at your salvation. And you will be proud 
and you will not be thankful. Be humbled. doesn't matter if God saved you as a little child or later in life. It is a sovereign work that he has done in your life. Secondly, you should apply this by humbly pleading for the salvation of others. While you cannot trump God's sovereign supernatural salvation, God calls you to pray. And he says that he sovereignly supernaturally saves using your prayers. And so you should be humbly pleading with God, saying to the Lord, it is, you would be right to leave us all in sin, but please in your mercy do this in so and so. Humble petitions. It's not wrong to have a, a greater affection for your own children than, than someone down the street. That's not bad. Use that affection. But understand that it is God doing a sovereign work and it's not you somehow bending His will. It's a great privilege. Parents, you have given, given many duties with your children. If you're wise, you'll take those duties seriously. But if you are really wise, you will also understand that unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. That is so true. Can you actually say to God that he would be just not to save your children? And then still plead for him to save your children in sovereign mercy. Thirdly, lastly, respond to this by pursuing sanctification throughout your life. Never be satisfied with where you are. Just because it seems difficult, just because it doesn't seem like you're making progress, just because it seems like you're stuck in the mud, just keep pursuing it. Keep, keep going to Scripture. Keep coming to church. Keep praying. Keep meeting with other Christians. But in all the while, be pleading with God to continue His work of mercy because unless He does that continual work, you will not progress. But if you believe that he is faithful, you will continue to cling to him and you will never be satisfied with, oh yeah, I'm good enough. We are to live our entire lives by faith. God will finish what he has begun. And when we arrive in glory, when we stand in glory, when we're with each other, and we're looking into each other's faces. Do you know what we're going to do? We're going to laugh. Are you kidding me? Barry, you don't even look like the same guy. I can't believe it. He's actually someone I like. I never liked you here on this earth, but man, you know, I get the glory, you're going to say, Wow! We're going to laugh. 
Don't you think that the thief on the cross was the last person you'd see in heaven? God does the unbelievable, the preposterous, the unimaginable. He does this. This is what he does every time he saves. May we be learning to laugh. Amen.